We're in week 10 of our study through what are called the Psalms of Ascent. The songs that were known by every Jewish person. Same way our Christmas carols and songs or our Easter songs. The songs that we know are sung all around the world are sung as for Christians today because they were sung by the Jewish people three times a year on pilgrimage when they were journeying from wherever they lived as the law required, the Old Testament required, to Jerusalem. And these would be the songs that they would sing in celebration as they traveled. And we're using it as an analogy for our pilgrimage as Christians from, from the life uh, that the world offers, from the life that, as, as Malia talked about, trusting in ourselves, trusting in man, uh, rooting our lives in our own purposes. What that yields versus life in Christ. The Bible refers to that as a spiritual journey from the city of man to the city of God. And it's not just a journey that has a destination of heaven or eternity in mind. It's a journey right now that God is in with us. It's a journey of transformation. And it's interesting that at this point, this psalm, Psalm 129, uh, nine weeks in, nine, nine psalms in, or is it ten psalms in? My math's short. At any rate, it's right at the right time because it's like two-thirds of the way through the journey. And the, the journey is, as our series and the book by Eugene Peterson that we're tracking with puts it, uh, it's a long obedience. Life is a marathon, and so is our Christian faith if we're going to thrive. It's a long obedience. And there's a point where you go, wow, yeah, this has to be something that's in for the long haul. The early excitement, the, the thrill of the, of the new journey in Christ settles in as, as we're trying to live it out in the world as it is today, hoping for the world to come. And there's a point where we have to be reminded that it's about perseverance. When we were raising our children, we lived up in Lowell, Massachusetts area, Chelmsford, and uh, our families all lived in New Jersey, and so we'd head down there on holidays and to visit grandparents, and the trip back, especially from South Jersey, you know, that's seven and a half hours with young kids. And then if the turnpike had construction happening or you know, I had a storm. I don't know if you've ever driven the New Jersey Turnpike. Anybody here? Oh, yeah. yeah, it's purgatory. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it could be a 12-hour trip, you know, to come back. And, and we always drove through Worcester. I had no idea we'd end up living here and, and leading a, a ministry in Worcester at the time. But, you know, we, were, we knew we were on the home stretch when we hit 290 and we came up uh, through Worcester, and there was a particular landmark that you could see on your right, heading north on 290, that said, we're, we're on the home stretch. Now, what, what, what landmark am I talking about? The polar bear, of course. Kids, there's the polar bear. And then one day we drove by, and it, it wasn't there. Somebody had stolen the polar bear. I think it was Coca-Cola. <laughs> and then a new polar bear, a more buff polar bear, was put in place, and and you'd think that that kind of would help the kids to go, oh, we're almost home, and, and it would relieve the pressure. But actually, what, what happened was those final 45 minutes were the hardest. They were the hardest, because we knew we were close. Hardest for the kids, and therefore really hard for mom and dad. Well, we're at that point in sort of uh, the, the metaphor of our pilgrimage. There, there's a point where you have to realize that life is hard. Life is hard. And the Christian faith gives it meaning, but doesn't make it any easier. 
And as we go through, what makes us stand out as people that are on this journey with God is that when circumstances come into our life that would knock other people off their feet, we stand. I've been in this pilgrimage long enough to be able to look back, and I know there's lots of you that can describe seasons as I have experienced where life just knocks you off your feet. Where you're just really focusing on taking the next breath. How many of you have been there? You know what I'm talking about. Really that few of you? Just wait. Just wait. It'll happen to you too. You know, we're, we're really, disaster, devastation, hurt happens on a level that you're just in survival mode. And, and you just really wonder how you're going to make it through. I've been through those seasons. And I'm on the other side of many of those. And I wish I could stand here and because the subject is perseverance, tell you how my wife and I achieved that. How we persevered through it. But the honest truth is I can't. All I can do is give testimony to the fact that we did. Because like other aspects of our pilgrimage in Christ, perseverance is not something you achieve. Perseverance is something that God brings into your life when it is rooted deeply in your life in him through Jesus. It's why people can look at Christians when they're facing devastating circumstances that would end it for so many people and say, how are you handling this the way you are? How are you still filled with hope? And why is it I detect a, a joy in you, even in this dark season? All of that comes not because we've achieved anything, but because God has achieved something. We persevere not because we've learned how, but because of who is involved in our life. So I can't tell you how we persevered. I can only tell you that we did. And that's what this psalmist does for us too. He's not, he's not gonna point out how you persevere through the hardest times. He's gonna point out why we do persevere. And so let's turn to it. It's Psalm 129. It's uh, in your pew Bibles. It's page 442. I'd like you to grab a pew Bible if you didn't bring one. Uh, or don't have an electronic version, because I'd like you to read it, because we're going to be studying it verse by verse, going through it. It's eight simple verses. Now I'm going to begin reading. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor, nor uh, one who gathers fill his arms. And may those who pass by not say of them, the blessing of the Lord is upon them. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Like so many of the Psalms of the children of Israel, there is a this, ver, us versus them kind of a picture, just like 
what Malia read. And, and uh, there is a, an image that there is a life that is miraculous and fruitful when it's grounded in God and his purposes and presence. And then there's a life that lacks that, that it, that it doesn't really produce fruitfulness. And, and we see that contrast here, but for, we're going to start by really focusing on the, the first four verses and, and find out that why. Why is it that God's people persevere? And here's the big idea I want to just reveal right at the front, and then we're going to unpack it. Perseverance is not something that we do. Perseverance is something that we experience as we journey with Christ through life. And that's exactly what we're going to see is the testimony on behalf of the nation of Israel, uh, as this psalmist writes. It will help you, as we interpret it, to understand that when it says, I, it's actually not speaking in first person of an individual. It's speaking of the nation of Israel in first person. Let's look at the first verse. You can imagine this as, uh, as a worship song of the people of God and the worship leader known among the Jewish people as a cantor would say the opening part of this verse. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth and then he'd encourage others to join. Let Israel say, and then everyone would sing or, or chant this loudly together as I'm going to ask you to do. They have greatly... Good. Most of you got your bodies here, but not your voices. So let's say this one more time. Come on. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. That's exactly how I want to hear every verse I ask you to say, because it's the way I know you're awake and tracking with me. Yeah, and so this is actually a testimony on behalf of the whole nation of Israel that actually tells us their whole story. This is the history of Israel in a nutshell. And if we understand Israel's story, we'll understand the nature of perseverance that comes to being part of the people of God. So when we look at Israel's whole story, this is what I want you to understand. And by the way, this will be helpful uh, in understanding current politics and the, what's going on in the Middle East. Israel baffles most people because they're not, they don't really play well with their neighbors. This is why, and this is not a political comment, this is not even a theological statement about uh, modern, the modern nation of Israel, but if you understand the history of Israel, you understand their mentality, because the history and mentality of the nation of Israel is summed up by one word, survival. From start to finish. There have been many ethnic groups, many people's groups that have been oppressed, enslaved, and treated horribly. And our nation has our own sad history that we have yet to recover from in that. But I dare you to look at history and tell me that there has been any ethnic group of people that throughout their entire existence have had their very presence on planet Earth constantly challenged experience more threats. It's to the point where it is actually supernatural in nature. And so when the psalmist says, back to the verse, 
And we're going to take, we're going to look at the two aspects of this. The first that's underlined, where they say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Who are the they? They is everybody else. <laughs> me is the nation of Israel. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. They're saying, right up until this point, we have experienced nothing but oppression and suffering and a struggle for survival and existence. When they speak about my youth, that's in Egypt. Right? When the children of Israel, the family, the immediate family, moved down during famine and set up residence in Egypt, in over 400 years, what was birthed out of that family was a nation so numerous that Pharaoh enslaved them. So right from the origins, they are enslaved. The plowman, as we read in, in verse 3, you know, plowed their backs and left deep furrows. What that meant is that the oppressors, the enslavers, like has happened in slavery here, benefited on the backs of the slaves. And the Jewish people were those slaves. But not only that, when the Jewish people became so populous that they couldn't be controlled, Pharaoh culled. There was a culling by killing the firstborn son of every family of the Jewish people. This is their origin story that they were helpless to be freed from. And, and it just continues. It actually continues right up through modern history into the promised land. During the period of the judges, we see them constantly at war with everyone around them. Not that they are seeking that war, but they are constantly being attacked. Let me just throw a few names of, of groups. Philistines, Syrians, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Jebusites, Hittites, that's just the short list. Every neighbor hated Israel. And by the way, the conflict that exists in the Middle East today is rooted in these ancient wars and battles. That's something we don't understand because we're a very young nation. We don't understand millennia-old hatred and warfare. This goes all the way back to then. Constantly threatening. Move up to the period of the monarchy under the kings of Israel. And now Israel as, a, as an established nation is constantly being threatened by the great world powers, whether it's Egypt or Assyria or Persia and eventually Greece or Rome. Move past the time of Christ into the modern era or the, what we call the common era, the last 2,000 years largely dominated by European history. And what you see is that there has never been a time, even in that, when the people of, of the Jewish nation were not being threatened and used. We focus a lot on the atrocities of World War II, when Nazi Germany, what they called their ultimate solution, thought to eradicate the Jewish people and killed millions. But the sad reality is that all of Europe, for more than two centuries, oppressed the Jewish people. They were not welcome. They were not trusted. They were either expelled or put in ghettos in order to control their coming and their going and their influence. Now, the reason why the hatred towards the Jewish people is supernatural is because it's not just that hatred that seeks to dominate and own and use and abuse and profit, which is often part of our broken history as a people. 
But it is persistently the type of hatred that seeks the eradication completely of them. Why is that? Why can we make the case that I have made about Israel? It's because it is not just hatred of people, ethnic hatred. It's not just bigotry. It's spiritual warfare. It's Satan's hatred towards the Jewish people. Because in eradicating the Jewish people, at least up to the coming of Christ, that would have meant putting an end to God's plan. Ending God's people would put an end to God's eternal plan and purpose of bringing redemption and salvation and recreation to our fallen world. And so there have always been those that sadly have been willing to be instruments of Satan in his attempt to come against and eradicate not just the people, but the very plans of God. That's why it's had this period of time. How in the world, why is it that in spite of that, they have miraculously survived over these thousands of years? Well, that's really what the psalmist says. He says, in spite of all that, second half of the verse, but we have not, they have not gained the victory over me. And we're not just talking about one war that they won. They're saying for the many centuries they have been in existence, no one has been able to ultimately gain the victory over them. How is it that they have persevered through all of this? Well, the psalmist reveals his understanding of how it is that this perseverance has occurred. It says on the screen, verse 3, but it's actually verse 4, Let's say this together. The Lord is righteous. He has set me free from the cords of the wicked. So first of all, the phrase, he has set me free from the cords of the wicked, is a statement of going back again to their origin story of them being freed from slavery. And, and that being a perpetual thing. God has kept them free as many people have attempted to enslave them and destroy them. But why is it that they have survived? It's that opening phrase. The Lord is righteous. The Hebrew word there for righteous, because that's, that's a big religious word. The Hebrew word is tzaddik, and it means faithful, blameless, right. And so what the psalmist is saying is, we have survived, and the oppressors have not had their way with us, simply because of God's faithfulness. And, and, and what that leads us is to this statement. The children of Israel has survived. Put that up. Its miraculous survival is due to one thing. Now, before I put it up, I want you to understand that the survival of the people of God, the Jewish people, is not because it is more deserved, they're more deserving, or that they have earned it, they are better than others. And that's true of our standing with God. As a Christian, I'm telling those of you here that are exploring your faith in Christ that none of us claim who have found life with God through Christ to be deserving of it or worthy of it. In fact, it's knowing that we don't deserve it that has led us to find it because it's all about God's promises and his work. And that's true here. Israel's miraculous survival is due to one thing only. 
God keeps his promises. That's it. The fancy word for promises in the Bible is the word covenant. Our God is a covenant-making, a promise-making, and a covenant-keeping, a promise-keeping God because he's righteous. His word is true and can be counted on. And that's the only reason why Israel is still in existence today. Because God is faithful to his promise. Because Israel, like everybody else, was unfaithful to God. We all fail. We all fall short. In Genesis chapter 15, you have this amazing scene where God confirms his promise or covenant with Abraham. Prior to this, God had already said to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, which was crazy because they had had no kids and they appeared to be barren and incapable of having children, at least his wife was. And so that was miraculous and time had gone by and rather than trusting in God's promise, Abraham sought a, a, a human path towards making that promise happen. He has a child with uh, Hagar, the handmaid of Sarah, and that was Ishmael. And Ishmael is the father of the Arabic people who have historically since then been enemies of Israel, the offspring of, uh, of Isaac. So God has to meet Abraham again and remind him of the promise. I'm going to build a nation between you and Sarah. You're going to miraculously give birth. Look at the stars. As numerous as they are, that will be your offspring. And I'm going to bring you to a land that I've set apart, which will not just be yours, but it will be my land. And through that land and in that land, the drama of redemption will be worked out in centuries to come. And a cross will be erected. And by means of that cross, I will bring the whole, I will make the world my people again. But I'm going to begin with you, Abraham. I'm going to build a people out of you that I'm going to fulfill this plan through. And in order to prove to Abraham the truth of this, God enacts with Abraham what we have come to understand is a version of a very common ceremony that would take place in the cultures of that day. You find allusions to similar uh, agreement ceremonies in, in other writings of its time. When two people who had no other reason to trust each other wanted to make a, a covenant or a contract with each other, the ceremony is very similar to what God asked Abraham to do. He asked him to kill three specific animals out of his flock. And what they would do is they would divide the, the animal right down the spine so that left side and right side were divided. And that would create a path through which those participating in the covenant would pass. And as they walk through that covenant, they would declare the terms of the, of the covenant and their commitment to the covenant. And the very dramatic nature of it spoke about how important those, that promise was and that they were making that promise at the commitment of their own blood should they fail. It was a life or death kind of a thing. That's how important it was. So God uses that very same covenant with Abraham. But when it came time for the ceremony to take place, God waits until Abraham falls asleep. <laughs> this is the only time 
in the whole story of Abraham where God speaks to him through a vision rather than by just speaking to him. And while Abraham is asleep, and, and this is really important, totally incapable of contributing to the covenantal ceremony, a torch, which we know represents the presence, righteousness of God, God with that torch passes through, along that path through those carcasses. He declares once again his promise to Abraham and his commitment to bring it about and the righteousness of his name that based on his good name and his promise, this will come to pass. And then at the point in the, in the ceremony where the other participant would pass through the other way, God turns around and he passes the other way. Abraham does not participate in the covenantal ceremony. Why? Because this covenant was not one that Abraham could keep. It was only one that God could and would keep. What he was saying through a familiar contractual celebration that on human terms would require two parties. What he was saying is, my promise will be guaranteed based solely on my commitment to you. And that's what we see. Israel perseveres for one reason. God keeps his promises for his children. And that's why we persevere in situations where we have no right to survive or to stand firm. Not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but because we call Jehovah Abba Daddy. We are his people and his children. Well, the writer goes on now, and there's a distinct change in attitude and tone as he talks about a very specific group of people. Let's read from verse 5. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say of them, the blessing of the Lord is upon them, and we bless you in the name of the Lord. Now, were I to allow you to think about people that have brought harm to you and hurt you, and to see this as sort of giving you permission to wish ill of them, I would be sadly misusing Scripture, and I would be giving you license to enact and seek revenge that is never ours to give. In fact, the Bible says very clearly, we turn the other cheek, we, we bless those who curse you. We love our enemies. What this is, is the psalmist's profession and understanding of how God acts, not towards all people, although we all will stand in judgment, but this is talking about how the psalmist expects God to act towards a very specific type of person. And it's revealed in verse 5. What type of people are we talking about here? Those who hate Zion. Those who in their heart are the ones who have plowed over and imprisoned and enslaved and worked to harm the people and the purposes of God. And what the psalmist is saying is, I know and I can count on and anticipate that while it may not be mine to act righteously 
towards these people, God will. And there are three things that he, that he asks and expects of God. First of all, of these people, that there be no honor. That in the end, their efforts will not be fruitful and they will be put to shame. That there be no success. That there's no harvest in their efforts to plant and produce. In particular, their efforts to work against the people of God who he loves and his purposes. And then finally, that there be no blessing. That phrase, you'll notice, I read it slightly different than it probably was in your text. Because it can read one of two different ways. May no one say a blessing over these people. Or it can be read as I read it, which I I think is more accurate. Let no one give God credit for any good that happens in the life of people whose heart is set against God. Let no one be able to say of them, look how God has blessed you. And therefore let no one seek that blessing more. And what that helps us understand is that this righteous God who keeps his promise is jealous of several things. First of all, he's clearly jealous for his people. When he commits himself to his people, he's jealous for them. He's jealous for his purposes and plans on earth. He will not let them be thwarted. But he's also jealous for his name and his glory. In fact, he says somewhere in Scripture, I will not share my glory with anyone. And in this setting, the psalmist is saying, I I know that a righteous God will not let somebody who has lived their life in a complete chosen act against the work and people of God to then be able to say, God has blessed me. Look at, look at the success in my life and give God the God does not want credit for the success of a person who's in rebellion against him. And while this pictures, as the Old Testament does, all of this happening in this life, we know that all of this is more of an eternal scheme. Like Paul talked about last week when he showed us that beach, one grain of sand representing a year of our life and eternity in front of us being like the beach, that God operates on an eternal level. And So here's the thing for us. We, as we know, we can be confident that God's sustaining power will be present in our life and circumstances when we are totally incapable of sustaining ourselves because we are his children and he's faithful to us. That same righteousness and justice of God will have its day in the life of those who are opposed, who have chosen to oppose the people and work of God. Wow, that's startling. It's a little scary. Boy, it's a... I, I gotta tell you, I, uh, I, I, I understand this feeling. I've told you about uh, a season when one of my daughters had a, a stalker on campus college she was going to, no matter what she said, he just kept hanging around, and she started feeling really unsafe, and, um, and uh, he, he was asked to, and then he keeps showing up, and I remember one time she called me, and she said, uh, Dad, he's here again, he's just like hanging out, he's not supposed to be around, and, and he's giving me these, I'm just really afraid, Dad, so I dropped what I was doing, and I drove there, I got stopped by a policeman, <laughs> evidently I was a little too anxious to get there. And I told him what was going on, and he said, go ahead. I felt gracious. So I'm pulling up on this campus. It's not a big campus, but there's about 3,000 students who attend it. And I'm thinking, 
I want to confront this guy. I want to confront this guy. I'm thinking, how am I going to find him? 3,000 kids. I drive up on the campus. I have no idea what I'm doing. Along comes this one guy walking down the sidewalk in front of the student center. And I called my daughter and I said, what's he wearing today? <laughs> it was him. So I pull up the car. I say, are you so-and-so? He says, yes, I am. And I just stop. I just get out and I confront him. And I say, why are you bothering my daughter? And he began to profess eternal love. Not only that he loved her, but he knew that she loved him and that he clearly knew my daughter more than I. And at that point, I knew this wasn't just an idiot. This is a very dangerous young man. And the first time in my life, I knew what it felt like to want to kill somebody. It scared me to death that I felt that way. Why? Because of my covenant with my child. Nothing was more important than her well-being. That's how your father is towards you. That's what this passage tells us. Leave that to him. That's not for you to bring about. Trust God to know how to best deal with those who would harm you as his child. Well, let's turn as we wrap to a New Testament idea. How, how do we really, we've applied this already, but how do we see this idea and concept in the New Testament? How can we hope to endure today as God's new people of God? I want you to turn with me um, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's page 817 in the Pew Bible. This is a moment where we, where we have one of those glimpses of the Apostle Paul into his transparency, his authenticity uh, with the Christians that he loved. I, I love that as a pastor, Paul was authentic about his own struggles. That's who we try to be uh, as pastors here. We share from our own lessons learned and our own journeys. Paul does that. And he says this about circumstances that he faced in his life. Look at me at verse 8 of chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about the troubles we experienced when we were in Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. That word endure, Greek, interchangeable with what word? Persevere. We felt we had received the sentence of death. We would despaired of life itself. Now let's just pause there. Think about this. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, who by his own testament had been caught up into heaven and seen things that were so wondrous he could not put pen and paper to it who had heard the very voice of God, who had been called into ministry mystically and supernaturally. That Paul confessed that he faced circumstances that were so severe he despaired of his ability to survive them, not just because of the physical threat, but because they were overwhelming. He had no resources to persevere on his own. Now, you know that statement that we often say to each other, God won't give you anything that you can't handle. How many of you have heard that statement? How many of you have had somebody say that to you? Next time, smack them in the face. In Jesus' name. Because it's bull. 
God always gives you more than you can handle. Well, what about that verse where he says, he will not give you any temptation that you are not able to, but will give you a way of escape. Yeah, that's talking about your moral choices, not about your life circumstances. Because God's after your character, not your comfort. And he will use circumstances where you find yourself totally at a loss to persevere and endure. So you understand we only truly endure because God is faithful. He goes on and he says that. We, we were at a point where we could not personally persevere. Verse 9, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. And he has delivered us from such a deadly peril. And that allows him to look to the future because God brought him through. He did persevere. He didn't know how, but he knew who. He knew it was God and his power and his strength. And he could look to the future and say, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope and he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. That's powerful. That's powerful. And so that leads us to this final thought in terms of how we endure. As Christians, as God's people, our survival is also due to only one thing. And it's not because we deserve it <laughs> or because we're better than anybody else or we've earned it. The reason why we persevere when other people find no reason to go on is for one reason and one reason alone. God keeps his promises. And that's why Paul could go on later on in the chapter, in, in this letter, and say this. We are hard pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why is that possible? How is it possible that these circumstances that we could not survive on our own, somehow we thrive in the midst of it? How is it possible? Because while death is at work in our body, the resurrected Christ is at work as well. And his strength is best revealed in our helplessness. And that's why he goes on and he says this, therefore, we do not lose heart. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, what is eternal. So persistence, perseverance, like joy, is a product of our lives being deeply rooted in God through Christ. We focus on being rooted. God focuses on his promise. And we persevere. Aren't you glad that you don't have to figure out how you make it through things, but you can just trust in a God who keeps his promises? Let's pray.